frustrated. I took my camera, so I was getting photos of the guys um, doing some some normal climbing, some traditional climbing, um, and. I kind of remember that, but I woke up a, f- a week later in a hospital in, in Aosta in Italy, um, having been... That was Chris Shirley, and this is The Vet Files. Welcome everyone, Russ McDonough, aka The Nomadic Veteran, and welcome to another episode of The Vet Files. Uh, episode 10 this week, double figures. Who would have thought? Um, right. Mega, mega interesting guest this week, Chris Shirley. Uh, Chris is a former bootneck officer. Um, before that, he was actually in the army, uh, the RMP, where I believe he had a a really good time of it. But he just he become a little bit disillusioned with it, and he, he wanted to to push himself harder. Um, in this in this episode, you know, we we talk about his time in the army. We talk about why he wanted to join the corps as an officer. Obviously his time in the corps as, as, a, as a troop commander. And then from there is where it gets really exciting. Chris is one of those guys who, and I can relate to it, I hope, uh, the fact that he is trying to push his mind, body and soul on a lot of various levels. So, you know, for example, and I won't—I don't want to give it all away—but you know, he's he's done the the marathon de Sables over in Morocco. He's rode the Atlantic. He's, you know, he's he's constantly looking for fresh ways to 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 push himself to to dig that a little bit deeper. Um, as a result of that, he's he's an avid mountaineer, um, and again, you know, that hasn't all been uh, plain sailing for him. So that we definitely go into a lot more into depth. Um, but the one thing I really really enjoyed talking to Chris was his work out in Afghan and what he's trying to do to make uh, a difference out in Afghan with his with his charity work as such. But anyway, uh, I just want to say a massive thanks to Chris. I really, really enjoyed chatting to Chris. I think it's quite a long podcast, actually, so that just shows how much, how much I enjoyed chatting to him. Um, brilliant guy. Now on to admin. Uh, I really want to say a big thank you to... Uh, Ben and Andy over at Offensive Veterans, um, they have decided that they would like to start sponsoring the show. So I just wanted to give you guys a little, a little history on on Offensive Veterans. So basically, they are an apparel brand. Uh, they've been around a little while now, and uh, for anyone who, who doesn't know anything about them, both Andy and Ben suffered uh, life-altering injuries out in Afghan, and ever since then, their friendship has, has grown, and they decided to start a company. Obviously, the Offensive Veteran. Um, the stuff they're putting out is brilliant. It's, as you can probably tell by the name of the of the company, you know, some of their language can be slightly offensive to certain people. Uh, but I think if you have got that sense of humour, which most military people do, or veterans do, should I say, uh, then I think you'll love their stuff. Uh, yeah, you know what? They design their own stuff. Great quality stuff. I've got a couple of their t-shirts. So you can find the guys at offensiveveteran.co.uk and if you would like a cheeky little uh, discount as well, use the use the discount code THEVETFILES, T-H-E-V-E-T-F-I-L-E-S. That will get you 10% off everything in store. So fill your boots on that one. Uh, and again, just a massive, massive thank you to the guys at Offensive Veteran for, for being our very first sponsors. It's uh, <laughs> It's massively appreciated. Anyway, that's the intro. That's the admin. Enjoy the podcast.
Welcome everyone, Ross McDonough, uh, and welcome to The Vet Files, episode 10, I believe, we've hit double figures. Anyway, uh, we've got a good mucker on today, former bootneck, uh, Chris Shirley, I will, as always, let him do the instructions, so Chris, the floor is yours. <laughs> well, I don't really know what, what narrative to come up with first, but I guess probably Average Mountaineer would be the, uh, the most recent one, um, and then... Supporter of sports in Afghanistan would be the the second or the main one. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And we'll, we'll touch on all those things massively as the podcast goes on. Um, but first off, uh, we'll talk about all those many moons ago. Why did you want to join the military? How old were you? And, and tell us the path you took into the military and the path you, you followed once you, once you were in. Yeah, sure, yeah. Well... As a as a twenty one year old, uh, I think I just finished two years of, of graphic design at university uh, down in down in Guz, down in Plymouth, where uh, the cause got a good footprint. Um, and after yeah, after maybe two years wandering around Union Street as a as a bemused uh, student, um, I decided that I didn't want to be sat behind a Mac for for the the formative years of my life, and decided to join the military. Um, so I followed my brother in and joined the military police which I know will shock a lot of people, <laughs> uh, followed him into the military police. But thankfully, uh, after 18 months in Northern Ireland, um, found my way onto the close protection course and kind of got kind of jammed into that specialisation from an early age. And, and that got me deployed to Iraq a couple of times and uh, in with a whole whole crowd of uh, guys who just liked being at the, the kind of the pointy end and, uh, and seeing the world in for, you know, for all its glory. So... Um, I, trans- I applied to commission into the Marines, failed my first one, cried my heart out on the way back to a Perbright as a phase one instructor, drove to, uh, sorry, went for a second attempt a year later uh, and somehow passed by the skin of my teeth and, and went into bootneck training in 2009 um, and came out the other end of 16 months into 40 commando um, in 2010 as a troop commander. Um, spent six years in the Corps um, between four, five, and Limpston, and and forty, and had a a whale of a time. Um, I developed a bit of a, a medical issue that um, kind of curtailed the, the military career, so I decided to, to punch out and, and I joined the BBC on the uh, on receiving end, and then became a consultant after that. Um, I think I've massively just steered us on a. So uh, let's, let's, let's rewind it a bit then. So um, CP in the military is, is that is it Longmore? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah Longmore Camp. Yeah, so that, that's that's quite a sort of famous uh, <laughs> course, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it's, it's um, so the RMP is still still have the the close protection um, specialisation, I think, which they inherited from Hereford uh, and seems to be custodians of now. Um, I've heard rumours that at some point they will lose it to the the wider military but i think that's probably just just rumors um but yeah no uh, eight weeks of running around longmore uh getting goosed or comparatively getting goosed to for the the, the commando course yeah <laughs> is yeah no it's it's it's, uh, it's pretty fun as like a 20 24 year old and you enjoyed uh, the job itself yeah it was yeah I, yeah i did yeah it was um it was really interesting because it, it kind of got ac- got me access to a world which i didn't really know from the from the kind of the green army you know it, it propels you into talking to generals and diplomats and just a whole 
other circle, which I think um, is probably closed off unless you're in a, a you know a certain group of um, you know regiments who who would usually get access to that those kind of people. But yeah, for for a bemused twenty four year old who'd spent four years studying graphic design and figuring out how to draw with a pencil, it was a, it was you know being propelled into a, a you know a really special place. And I, I think I, I I grew up on a so, on a social housing estate, and for me to kind of imagine myself looking after a general or a, a diplomat when uh, you know I, I spent my time running around a you know council estate I still couldn't believe it myself <laughs> and then how long did you do that for uh for uh, I was in the military police for six years in total I think four and a half of those were were pretty much close protection give or take mm-hmm. you know other other bits of um you know when you're policing out in Germany or, or teaching phase one recruits in 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 Herbert's. Okay, and then what? Why did you then? Because obviously you were enjoying it. Why did you then think, ah, oh, not only do I want to transfer over to the corps, but I want to, I want to give, I want to go fucking commissioned as well. What, what what's the rationale behind that? Yeah, um, so everyone, everyone that I'd spoke to spoke really highly of the corps. So in in the army, um, I, I I was attached to one para for for a few months in I think in two thousand and five before they became SFSG and. Um, I had a really great time with them up in the in the towers, but everyone always spoke more highly of the core. Uh, and yeah, so so uh, yeah, so I, I I've got a mate from school who's who's been with the core, um, you know, since way before I was, and and yeah, everything everything kind of drew me towards the core. As the you know, the culture was really was really strong. You know, it was um, people were full of morale. It was it was it just seemed like a really interesting place to go to, and also. Dare I say it? When you're attached to the navy, it gets you out of the, you know, into places you don't really visit that often. You know, so um, you know, West Africa, uh, through to the Middle East, the Suez Canal, Mediterranean, for example, all places that I visited in the core. Um, and those are the stories I was hearing before I joined, as opposed to go and become a para, for example, and go and be stuck in Colchester or you know other other. And I'm not speaking disparagingly of the you know the powers of the corps, um, the infantry, but there, there were more options for travel, which was kind of a, a big um, theme through my life as well, travel and adventure. And then what? But what? Why? Why did you want to go down the officer route? Why do you think? Oh, you know what? Because obviously, <laughs> joining joining the Marines is, is a non-commission. You, it's what? When I went through, it's thirty weeks. Now I believe it's thirty-four. Or, or even maybe even longer, but but you were like, no, I want to go do YOs, <laughs> which is as we said before, is sixteen months. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's crazy. What? Why? Why? Why that? Basically, I think um, I think the, what the good thing about the army is, or the military is, is it, it does kind of make you believe in yourself from whatever background you're in. Um, it, it does kind of like pull you know pull this um, confidence, self belief out, self belief out of you, which. You don't, you don't really ever get to see, I think, outside of the military. So after a few years in, in the RMP, I kind of started to actually believe myself. You know, I wasn't just Chris from you know, a housing estate in, in Somerset. I was actually Chris, you know, who, who could maybe become an officer, which um, was what a kind of a few people had, had, had been saying to me like over the over few years. So, um, yeah, I, I no doubt pissed a few people off, applied to join the you know, the corps on, on commission uh, failed my first um, interview board quite quite dismally, um, and then 
you know, was kind of resigned myself to thinking, oh, well, I'm, I'm just going to be Chris, you know, in the RMP, you know, non-commissioned. Um, but then, you know, in a few months, you know, it really started burning back in me that actually, you know, you fail at one thing once. It doesn't mean that you're kind of, your cards are marked forever. It's actually, you can you can go back for a second or a third go if you want. And um, I I was at the age where I was near the cutoff on my first go and, and so had to apply and kind of plead with the court to say, you know, can I have another go, um, even though I'm, I'm over the age limit now. Um, and they said, because, yeah, you know, because you were, you were so close to passing, but you didn't, we'll give you a second shot. Um, so I locked myself in my room for <laughs> literally months, sat there and read as many, as many, um, you know, current affairs books as I could really just, just beasted myself to try and try and make myself pass having known what, Know, what it's like to fail it the first what, time. So. What is the selection process for, for going court commission? Um, and did so, they tell you uh, the first time when you when you failed? Did they tell you why? Did they give you good feedback on on what? Or? Yeah, yeah. So the so you've got the, the potential officers course, which is three days, uh, yeah, three or four days down in Limpson, um, where you just get goosed. You know, they run you around the the, the Tarzan, they run you around the. Um, I can't remember the, like the other assault courses now. <laughs> you know, they just goose you for a few days and mm-hmm. they sit you down. You know, and then and then uh, put you in a suit and see what your you know what your knowledge of current affairs is. And if you pass that, then you go on to the the Navy Selection Board, which is the the Admiralty in HMS, I think in Portsmouth somewhere. Um, and then they it's more about kind of doing team tasks and then talking about current affairs and where the Navy's going and where the you know what what's happening in current affairs and the in the wider context. Um, my first time, I I crashed and burned on that because I I focused too much on. You know, I think what the kind of military was doing as opposed to, to just, you know, how do you go about chatting to people and, and building, you know, social capital, you know, and, and, and getting to know people. So, uh, you know, a year, it gave me a year to prepare um, because they won't they won't let you do it twice in a year. It gave me a year to prepare. And then, yeah, I spent my, <laughs> my evenings uh, teaching, sorry, my days teaching phase one recruits in the army. And then my evenings sat there reading you know, anything I get my hands on about current affairs and podcasts and, and yeah, all sorts, just to try and kind of get me a, a better understanding of it. Okay, and what, what was the age cut-off for that? Because you said you were you were over it, but... Uh, tw- 25, I think they've changed the age cut-off now to higher, but it was 25 uh, back in 2008, 2009. Um, and I'd... My first girl was 24, but then I had my 25th birthday... Um, and then, the, you know, I was, I was 25 and I think six months, so, so I applied for a second go and they said yes and managed to squeeze through that time. And it was the oldest oldest bloke in the batch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Granddad in the yeah. batch, yeah. And then how was that? How was that Dan Limston for, for 16 months? Why was that? Um, yeah, Limston's a pretty special place, isn't it? It's, I don't know if I'd use the word um, special, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it is, it is a huge experience because um, it... It, it shows you everything that's kind of good and bad about yourself, doesn't it? You know, it really, it really kind of pulls the moments when you can really dig deep. And it also kind of shows you where you, you fail quite spectacularly, you know. So um, there's a lot of guys there who have gone through public school, who've gone through, you know, being like captain of the rugby team. Um, and guys who sadly not with us now, you know, who had the most incredible social skills. And for me, it was like 16 months of just pinning my ears back, learning and, and, and kind of absorbing skills of other people who had who had it in abundance. And, uh, you know, I was like, wow, this is kind of really good ways to lead people. These are really good ways to kind of empower people. These are good ways to just kind of understand 
understand people what what motivates people so yeah it was it was a kind of the the start of a a lifelong journey of kind of learning from other people i guess to uh, to put it in a (laughs) slightly chad way (laughs) and then was there was there any um obviously like you said there's there's a lot of the lads who joined there from like public schools and 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 all that and you're that's not your background was there any kind of conflict there at the beginning or was it like you're all in this together straight away no, there's there's no real conflict there with what kind of background you come from. I think it's um, I think the the six years I did in the RMP prepared me, kind of gave me the confidence to to try it. You know, mm-hmm. whereas uh, there's people who I you know in the town where I grew up in in Somerset where they're still very much there in the town doing the same thing that, that you know now was what we were doing twenty years ago. You know, mm-hmm. so I think all all the the six years in the army did was was kind of give me a bit of confidence and self belief to go actually, you know, put yourself in the in this this difficult environment and and see how you come out rather than some people would never who would never put themselves there in the first place. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think this Lipson's a really great leveler. Um, you know, <laughs> to, I can see not in your head. Yeah, it's, it's it's a really great leveler because you know. You, you can't hide anything in Limpson, can you? It's like you get you get stripped back to to kind of who you are, and then um, you know if your your shortcomings will be pointed out, and you will see it with your own eyes for the first time because it's like you know you're you can't hide anything in there. It's um, yeah, you know you, you can't just you can't just grizz it out for sixteen months. It's like you can grizz it out for maybe mm. a couple of weeks, and then you're sleep deprived and you're. You know, you're exhausted and you're mentally kind of destitute. So it's you know, you you have no other choice but to figure out how to kind of repair those shortcomings and make them make them better. And then how was uh, how was your pass at then? Obviously, family all came down. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, yeah. My 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 dad served in the Royal Navy. My uncles were there. Who one of them was in the Navy as well. My mum my mum was there. In, in tears, my dad was there, like showing the instructors how to strip down an SLR. I remember. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think I think they couldn't believe it because um, you know, no, no, no one in my family has ever been commissioned before. You know, we've all been, um, you know, other ranks in the in the navy. I think my granddad was in the in the in the Royal Artillery, um, but yeah, I was, I was, you know, somehow managed to become the first person in the family to get a, you know, to be commissioned in the in the military. So. Oh. Yeah, I think for them it was particularly special because it was, um, you know, just just set a new, a slightly new, higher standard of, of kind of what you know you could you could achieve coming from a, a you know a social housing estate. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you said you went to forty after that. How yeah. Was, how was it becoming a, a troop commander straight <laughs> off the bat in forty? Um, hmm. Yeah, uh, forty forty was a it was something of a challenge. Um, Forty had been on Herrick Twelve, which had been a really quite a, a challenging uh, tour for for the unit. I think for the corps as well. Um, so it was it, it, it wasn't straightforward um, in the slightest. Uh, and then when we got deployed on Cougar in in let's see Easter two thousand and eleven now, um, that was the start of the Arab Spring. You know, so when uh, Libya Libya um, kind of destabilised, you had. I can't even think of what other countries were destabilizing. <laughs> so I think Syria started then. You know, there's many Arab countries that were rapidly destabilizing. So we got we got kicked out the door, you know, figuratively from Norton Manor um, in Easter with a 
a big question mark as to when we were coming back because it was an amphibious tour that was already planned for, to be three or four months, but we got kicked out the door maybe two months early. And it was, you know, there's people there who just come back from leave from Herrick 12, you know, with, with, um, you know, not like leave bellies, you know, but literally like sitting in that mindset where yeah. you, you just get used to being kind of on leave. And then, um, all of a sudden it's like, right, you need to, you know, we all need to focus a lot now. And yeah, it was, it was, a it was a difficult place because there was, um, there was still a lot of angst left over from Herrick 12. There was, um, you know, some, some, conflicts you know between people um you know who who you know thought they'd come up short or they they you know had performed far better than everyone else had thought and it was a, a real hotbed of of angst but um yeah no it was I, I was lucky that I had like a lot of a lot of hoofing blokes around me who mm. were able to kind of keep it moving forward whilst we were whilst we were dealing with them um, the kind of the angst you know has gone in the background so yeah yeah it was um yeah, it was a, a real a real interesting place to be but um looking back on it now it was you know if you if you're going to be an officer in the in the in the core it was you know the best place to be because it taught you everything you needed to know about what motivates people what what pisses people off what kind of helps them get to be a bit better what what kind of holds them back as well so it was, yeah, it was, it was almost, I kind of compare it a bit now to like a university of life, but it was, um, yeah, I, I think I wrote, um, two or three journals whilst deployed on, um, on the, the LPD we were on, um, during the Arab Spring, you know, where we were kind of heading towards Libya with the, the intention of doing a, uh, an evacuation and then turned away and then turned down there again and turned away and, you know, it was very much toing and froing and, and being tethered to Cyprus was, a uh, yeah, starting to wear a bit thin when he just sat there doing endless candidate lectures. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> even though I was finding it hard to sell, like the idea of candidate lectures to, to lads, you know, and dry training in the uh, on the vehicle decks and stuff. You know, it was it was, uh, it, it was hard work to to stay motivated and, and enthusiastic about it when you know you could see blokes were, mm. were literally just threaders at being away from family, right, you know, rightfully so, you know, because they they just come just back come from back yeah well. from, from Eric uh, or from post post-tour leave. Okay. And then what was, what was some of the, the greatest hits of, of your time as, as being a, an officer in the Corps? Uh, um, I think, <laughs> I mean, you, you meet some awesome blokes and, and I think I've kind of been that rubbish because I've got a lot of blokes now who, who kind of, you know, get in touch with me from Facebook and Instagram and, and um, you, know, you know, say, bloody hell, Chris, you know, you're you're a silly now, and and it's it's lovely to to hear from blokes who you know who who once were in the, were in the same troop or I was in I was a troop commander, and now we can sit there and have you know coffee and you know and talk to you know talk to each other like normal human beings. You know, it's like mm. I think of uh, Sammy and Dan who are both um, Royal Navy photographers now, um, who were both um, Marines in 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 ten troop Delta Company in forty. You know, when I was you know when I was a troop commander. And now um, we chat to each other every kind of few weeks, and awesome. a few other blokes who've gone then, um, you know, more towards the Dorset routes, uh, you know, who are now who are now, um, yeah, kicking doors in, and, and uh, you know, are still in touch now, which is, you know, I think it just kind of proves, you know, I kind of been all that rubbish, to, you know, like to get in touch yeah. years later to say, oh, you know, how am I doing? And I think when I had this mountaineering accident as well, um, like loads of people got in touch to. to Kind of offer their their you know support and um, you know ask us how I was getting on. So um, yeah, it was it was um, 
I kind of, I think I might have been doing something right, but I, <laughs> I didn't say it too loud. No, good. <laughs> and then, um, I suppose the next logical question is, what, what made you want to leave? Um, so I was, I was kind of gearing up, obviously, for the next step in, you know, in the core, which is obviously um, uh, selection and, and start to get these these weird like, allergy-like symptoms where my, my face would, or my jaw would swell out, um, kind of almost like I've been, like I've been like punched, you know, several times. It was, it was kind of like, it was just like swelling out and, um, the, the core rightfully put me on, on non-deplorable while I tried tried to figure out what it was. Um, and after no, no joy of figuring out what it was for a year and a half, you know, I decided that I was, I was kind of through with waiting for, for something to, to show itself. And, um, yeah, I decided to kind of grip it and, and see what, what the next career was. Um, so yeah, left in 2016, um, somehow got a job in the BBC as an advisor, uh, and kind of set about a, a whole new life path from there. Um, so I think, I think it'd be rude of me not to ask, did you ever find out what, what the allergy was? Um, no, not really, but, um, I've got my, I've got suspicions. It was probably myself, uh, in that when I was, when I was, I was training for selection. I was putting myself through too much high intensity anaerobic fitness, which is um, what you should only do twice a week, from what I understand. And mm. I, was, I was cracking it more like four, sometimes five times a week, you know, because I was, I was really in that mindset where I was like, right, I need to, I need to have fitness really nailed down because I was, I was okay at yomping, but you know, a mile and a half would would be you know more of a challenge. You know, I'd be I'd be near the kind of like, you know, over the kind of like the the, the second third you know third third um of like any pack you know doing the yeah. mile and a half because i was you know I could, I could definitely yomp and carry stuff but um i wasn't that rapid so i was, I was doing loads of sprint training in the evenings like camp circuits up at four or five and uh, just you know just high intensity fitness um and i think my body was responding with you know the lack of sleep and how much i was doing to in the evenings by by kind of um the immune system attacking itself wow. which is what I've what I've kind of I've done my own research over the last few years and, and figured out that that's probably the most likely cause of what it was. So I was I was my own worst enemy in that I was trying to push myself harder than the, mm. the kind of your body can can and, and should really do. So um, yeah, no, it's a it's a life lesson which I think I'll I'll definitely carry on with me for you know, for many years. But um, yeah, <laughs> at the time you know I, was, I, I thought the, the only way to kind of mitigate it was to was to train harder you know mm. so that only made the symptoms or only made the symptoms worse <laughs> so it sounds mental talking about yeah, it yeah it does it's, it's got a broken right? leg <laughs> and then uh like you said bbc um so what what, what ensued for the next sort of like couple of years and that work-wise yeah so i i was uh, i was quite lucky that i i, I joined the bbc as a an advisor on the high risk team which sounds Hoofing on a, I think that's the first few months. That was definitely, you know, I was like, oh, hoofing. I'm a, you know, I've left the call and I'm a high risk advisor at the BBC now. And it sounds, like, even my mum was impressed. You know, she was like saying, <laughs> she was like, oh, that sounds like a job for life, Chris. Um, um, but the reality of it was was uh, commuting into central London. You know, jumping on a tube for an hour uh, from like southwest London, sitting in somebody's armpit sweating like hell um you know there's no there's no kind of like wandering off to go and um you know go and sit there and watch jeremy kyle or 
or play Call of Duty, you know, the, the BBC. It was like you went there and it was like you were you were hard at work for hours and hours. Really? Yeah, yeah. And it was. I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm sure of hard work, but all of a sudden, with the, the the change in lifestyle from being quite active to being on a tube every day and sitting in an office and being a slave to to a computer, and then going home and then. You know, you, you're too tired to go for a run. You're too tired to go to the gym. Everything's shut. It's pissing down with rain in the winter. Um, it's it's a very, it's a very different lifestyle to that of the military. You know, the, mm-hmm. the where you're fast roping out of helicopters one day and then you know um, rib insertion. You know, onto you know, yeah. onto Fort the next day. You know, which is is uh, when you're when you're sat there um, hearing mates doing that day in day out. Even the the best job at the BBC then start to kind of go a bit down. So I, uh, I reluctantly left after six months um, with the idea of becoming a consultant, which I hadn't really researched that much. It was kind of a, a bit of a punt, um, you know, just had some savings, which um, I relied on to, to pay rent and obviously feed myself. And um, yeah, got very lucky and went out to uh, Afghanistan to work with a charity for, for six weeks uh, as my first as my first gig um, within a couple of weeks, so mm. yeah, must have done something right because that was a that was a you know a bit of, a bit of confirmation that I'd, I'd I'd had the skills and knowledge to um, convince people that I could do security consulting uh, as a short term thing. Um, so did that for for three years and, and worked for another charity, and uh, now I'm now I'm sat here nursing a broken leg in the middle of a, a global pandemic. So. Which, uh, <laughs> yeah, if you get do it, do it, do it, do it, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go on to that actually, so um, you're obviously a really outdoorsy person, you know, we'll talk about the accident, but uh, yeah, yeah. you've done the, the NDS over in Morocco last year, you've also rode the Atlantic, yeah. you know, <laughs> what is it about going outside and doing these kind of crazy challenges and that, and, and, and tell us how the Atlantic thing came about as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess probably the, the, the first one was, um, like I found at the BBC, was that I still I still wanted to do that kind of physical, you know, endeavours um, because at the core, obviously, you know, teaches you some incredible skills, you know, vertical assault and all these other all these other cool things, um, which I wanted to carry on outside, and I wasn't getting in the in the BBC, so kind of had to find a way of you know find a hybrid lifestyle where I could make sure I was still eating and paying rent and then also do these, these cool things like the NDS. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I did the consulting thing, which allowed me to take some time off to go and, and row the Atlantic, which was something I heard. Um, I think through the previous five years, there, there was quite a few bootnecks who've rowed the Atlantic and um, yeah, just your attention gets drawn around to it. And, and um, before I knew it, I was, I was part of an expedition to try and break um, Aldo Kane and, and Foxy's world record from from Portugal to South America. Mm. So um, yeah, with another another um, veteran, uh, an ex royal engineer called Duncan Roy, um, who's, a, who's a great mate. Um, we we set off with a team of three other blokes to row from Portugal to French Guiana in in South America. Um, How was it? <laughs> that was a that was a that was a real life experience. That was a Three months aboard a uh, an eight meter rowing boat. We we um, <laughs> we assumed that the skipper. Uh, I won't mention the skipper through his own <laughs> his own um, uh, protection. We, we the skipper kind of assured us that the boat was 
seaworthy and it was mechanically sound and you know we trusted him and we we yeah we were too busy focusing on raising the money for it and using it to, to fundraise for charity uh we got out on we set off from portugal when the weather was right and the boat just turned into the biggest bag of bolts you can ever imagine it was the rudder started falling apart the the um cells weren't the batteries weren't charging the the um Solar panels weren't doing their job. Everything was just falling apart around us. So we, after after a week, we couldn't steer the boat. So we were literally pretty much riding it, you know, surfing it to uh, to the Canary Islands. We crashed. So we crash landed in uh, T- Tenerife. No, where were we? Yeah, Tenerife. Um, no, sorry. What are the other islands in the Canary Islands? You got Tenerife. It's Oh, yeah, so I'm not, not to know if it's one of the other islands. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the name. We'll just keep it broad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Islands, yeah. Islands, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we crash landed there on on Christmas Day in 2017, and um, the so that the rudder was it's it's uh, car- fabricated carbon. So obviously, it's you can't just go and buy another one from your local Halfords or Wicks. It's a case of it's like somebody's handmade it by laying strips of carbon, you wow. know, and yeah. and. We were we were just thinking right. This is a world record off now. You know, it's it's a world. It's not a world record because we've got to crash land in the Canary Islands and step foot on land, uh, and also the the rudder is not something which you can just pick up off the high street. It's mm. like handmade. But as it happened, we uh, we 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 bumped into a carbon fabricator in in the um, in the jetty. Yeah, and he he fabricated us a new rudder. I think on on well. The 27th of December, so literally we got there on Christmas morning, you know, we're like, we are totally screwed, there's going to be nobody here can fix this, mm. they're all going to be like at home with family, chilling out, you know, hopefully, and, and we somehow bumped into a carbon fabricator who actually remade our rudder for us. Wow. Um, it's, I, it literally sounds like too weird to believe, um, but yeah, we, 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 so we got the rudder fixed, we... we Got the boat in a much better state. You know, we tied it up. We made it more seaworthy, and then set off again. The, the solar panels weren't working still, so we had to. We then had to schedule another stop in um, the what's the island? <laughs> I have to look at my phone to figure out what the island is off off Africa. Um, what's uh, what is the island? Oh, Cape Verde. Sorry, that's it. Yeah, Cape Verde. We stopped in Cape Verde for another another week or so to get the the solar panels that weren't charging. The, the batteries weren't holding a charge. The solar panels weren't charging them. Um, we managed to fix them in Cape Verde and then set off on the final month to uh, to <laughs> French Guiana. We ran out of the, the seawater, corroded the skateboard bearings that were in the seats. Mm-hmm. So we <laughs> we we rode arms only for a thousand miles, which doesn't sound that bad it's uh you, you use a lot of your legs when you're rowing mm. um if you sit there on a rowing machine and row with your arms you'll realize how gash it actually is <laughs> so, so uh, I, I swear it sounds like i'm making this stuff up it it's not a, a single word of it is a lie it's completely true and yeah we we got there to the other side obviously a few arguments en route with a skipper um <laughs> got to the other side and then flew back and then yeah, Duncan then did it a year later for for British Legion. Um, uh, him and I are still are still busy mates. I t- talk to him most days, and yeah, um, 
I don't really know where you go from there. Really, it just kind of it kind of solidified this this real interest in adventure and travel and and doing um, kind of things which I guess people don't really expect of you. Mm-hmm. If you're you know if if you if you're I don't know uh, you grew up on a council estate or you're an officer, I think people kind of expect you might go and work in an office or you're going to be a you know you're going to be a, um, a lorry driver or something like that. Mm-hmm. I kind of I kind of set out to be like right all these pre preconceptions. I want to start getting rid of those, you know, um, just as, just to kind of, you know, see the look on people's faces when you can say you can come from a social housing mm-hmm. estate and get a commission or you can be an ex officer and, and do something creative or you can, um, do something which is non, you know, not in the financial sector or mm-hmm. not in management consultancy or something equally as bland as that. <laughs> I said that I've got many mates in both of those sectors, so I do apologize if they're here and listening to that. <laughs> and then, uh, you obviously you into your climbing, mm. which kind of leads us on to. Uh, it's obvious for me sitting across from you, but I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll let you spin the dit on this one. Yeah, so um, I guess probably on from following on from that earlier conversation, that um, you kind of you, you seek uh, like challenges after the after you leave the core. And I got into mountaineering um, through some university mates and, and started climbed Mont Blanc in 2016, and then kind of began a bit of a love affair with mountaineering. So. Um, 2017, we went for our first attempt at the Matterhorn, were unsuccessful, and the same happened in 2018, we were unsuccessful, and then 2019, last year, we went for another attempt, got got as far as 400 metres from the summit and got weathered off it. Um, it, it's, it sounds like a... I'm not even making this up. The Matterhorn is a bit like the Tarzan assault course, at 3,000 metres up in the sky. Like, it's... You start climbing ropes with, obviously, your your your, your Bergen on, or your, you know, your backpack. Um, you're carrying, you know, all your food and water, trying to muscle yourself up these ropes, you know, that are 3,000 metres up in the sky, you know, so there's there's 12% less oxygen at the point where you then start doing the Tarzan course. <laughs> and I say this knowing that there's a double amputee um, mm-hmm. Neil, who, who's just summited it and has got my my utmost respect. Um, so yeah, we got we got weathered off the the the, the, the summits or weathered away from the summits. Um, so it came down a bit frustrated. I took my camera, so I was getting photos of the guys um, doing some some normal climbing, some traditional climbing, um, and I can't remember that. But I woke up a, a week later in a hospital in in Aosta in Italy. Um, having been having been intubated, having um, been aeromedded off the off base camp, um, and almost having died on the yeah on this mountaineering expedition. So um, I sat there nursing a, a badly broken leg. I think I had um, two two the bone was broken in two places, and it was sticking out the skin. Um, when I woke up, I'd had three operations to repair it, and mm-hmm. they'd they'd. Um, I'm so I'm showing you this this scar here, so you can see it. Yeah. They basically put a, a long metal bar into my shin bone to kind of keep it all together, um, because they can hollow out the bone marrow and then put a, uh, essentially like a crowbar through it, and that holds the pieces together. And then it's it's expected that the pieces will then obviously grow, grow and rejoin again. Yeah. Um, that that uh, I picked up an infection uh, at some point. 
just because things are going great anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we haven't got to the pandemic yet, either. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, uh, so yeah, my, my, my luck was really high. Uh, I picked up an infection in the bone, so um, I had to get transferred to another hospital. I had to have six centimetres of the fragmented infected bone cut out of my chin. So I woke up after the, the sixth operation um, with a, a really gammy short leg, you know, <laughs> pointing inwards, um, and this big metal scaffolding um, fitted to the outside of it, and um, got discharged maybe three weeks later after after having a pretty intense morphine, well, some pretty intense morphine experiences. Um, yeah. It's a, if you've ever been on morphine, it is a honking drug, because it, you don't need to, you don't need to chit, you need to wee, you don't need to, you're not hungry, you're, you just kind of sit there in this like weird state of not feeling anything, mm. um, which isn't really helpful because you're, you're, you know, you really need to drink water, but you don't feel like drinking water. You really need to chit, but you don't feel like chitting, you know, or, or eating. So, uh, you, it's just, it's just there to kind of numb any sensation. And, and, um, so yeah, so yeah, had a few days on morphine, um, got myself off that to just for fear of, um, just wanting to kind of you know, move forward and, and, and drink and eat and, and just be fairly normal. Um, and then, yeah, had, had that was, what, December 2019, and then spent the last uh, nine months kind of out of hospital recovering from, um, yeah, from that, that operation, regrowing that six centimetres of shin bone, mm-hmm. um, which grows, uh, I think, about a centimetre per month. It's about a millimetre per day or so, but then mm-hmm. it also needs to harden as well. So... Yeah, I've grown. Um, yeah, well, like what half a foot of new bone that I didn't know before. Oh, <laughs> um, sat there on this on this sofa that I'm talking to you from now for like the f- the first two weeks over Christmas. So I woke up, you know, literally and and spent 24 hours there on the sofa because it was too painful to walk to the bathroom. Um, you know, literally sat there swamping into a bottle, um, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, you know, over Christmas. Um, slowly kind of recovering and then there was a there's a pandemic on its way that you know nobody yeah, saw yeah, coming yeah. in 2020 but yeah. yeah just really just changed it for everyone didn't it it's um so yeah. has, any, has, has anyone kind of told you what happened on that when, when it happened has anyone pieced together what happened or what went wrong should i say like, yeah kind of yeah so so, so um yeah kind of like your, your studies yeah so my, my mates um they they were they were climbing uh, and I I wanted to take photos of them so I had my my DSLR on me um, was was kind of following them uh, they they were climbing and I was kind of like walking on apparently a lot, like a less steep area to to photograph them and then apparently nobody saw it happen but I had a you know they heard a a yelp and then just saw me cartwheeling down this kind of steep section so. Um, when they, when I came to and they said it's about about fifty meters of a of a of a cartwheel, um, so it bounced down fifty meters. Fifty five zero. Yeah, five zero. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, a decent, <laughs> a decent, um, a decent swan dive. Apparently, <laughs> um, they 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 assumed I was dead. Um, my my helmet was had massive cracks down it. In fact, I'll, I'll show you the helmet actually as well, so you can see it. I've, I've still got it as a reminder. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought I was dead. They called it. They came up to me. Apparently, I wasn't breathing. They called a, an amb- you know, they called the the aeromed, um, who, who flew a helicopter up there in fifteen minutes. Um, the paramedic said 
he won't make it down to the hospital. You know, flew me down anyway. Doctors, you know, managed to make it there. The doctors said he won't, probably won't make it very long. Uh, I was on, I was, I was intubated, so I was obviously having something breathe for mm-hmm. me, machine breathe for me, uh, and then, um, yeah, kind of against against expectations, uh, was taken out of a coma after eight days, and and then woke up in hospital. Uh, the 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 doctors all said, look, he's he's got three bleeds on his brain, three legions, so um, we don't know what it's, he's going to be like when he comes out of a coma. Uh, the first day I couldn't talk, I didn't recognise anyone, I couldn't remember anyone's names, didn't know where I was, um, was just completely, uh, you know, just just on the back foot. Um, I think after two days I started talking, uh, my girlfriend dropped everything, flew out, Duncan, my, my roommate, mm-hmm. dropped everything and flew out, um, he he was literally in the gym when he'd heard from, from my girlfriend, uh, drove for six hours, literally dropped Whatever weights he's carrying, <laughs> dropped his weights. <laughs> um, you know, went packed the bag um, and, without thinking, flew out to, to see me in wow. in uh, in Italy and in in Aosta. You know, so they flew into Milan and then drove for like three or four hours to get to me um, to be by my bedside. And then brother and, and then friends obviously started to come out as well and uh, just to make sure I was okay. And and um, yeah, they you know they were talking to me while I was in a coma. They were. Dealing with, um, you know, I, I, thankfully I'd insured myself with the, the British Mountaineering Council. Um, they were talking to, you know, all the family, keeping everyone updated. Um, and, yeah, I just had this this utterly incredible support team who were, were getting around my poor admin, you know, for, you know, for, for, that, for those, those two weeks. Um, you know, they, they didn't know... I thankfully I'd forwarded my insurance details to my girlfriend, but they didn't know what GP I was with, you know, you know, what where my phone was on a camp, you know, all of my stuff. Um, I had people fly out literally just to to, to take my gear, my mountaineering gear. I had like a hundred liter North Face grip, which somebody flew out just to just to come and see me in hospital and fly that back to the UK. So it it was kind of talking about it now. It sounds like a like a Formula One pit team, you know, literally mm. these like all these incredible people kind of rallied together. And, and I, I was running a, an adventure community back in the UK and I, I planned a talk for when I was supposed to be back in the UK. And um, that, you know, that was, that was Afghan mountaineers who'd flown over to the UK to do these, these profile building events. Mm. Um, and, you know, they were, they were looking at cancelling it, but um a, a BBC journalist had heard about it who, who'd known me in the high risk team and said he would he would step in and um you know do the talks for me so yeah it, it was literally you know people would were, were getting around getting around me in a good way yeah 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 get around my, my bad admin in a, in a good way whilst I was in a coma and kind of like helping things to to carry on forward so yeah I've got I have got a ton of thank yous to say <laughs> after this for many, many years to come. Has your has your <laughs> your outlook on life changed at all? Has have you, have you has anything changed for you? As in, like, because uh, that is obviously you. That was you. Your your mm. your, your crack at life was over. Do you see things differently now? Do you yeah. approach things differently. Yeah, I think um, so. I'd never broken a bone before that fateful day on the Matterhorn, and uh, it sounds a bit wrong because I've, I've torn muscles and I've, like, I think I've, I think I've broken my nose maybe in in, in martial arts, but 
I'd never actually physically broken a bone before, you know, so I'd never spent any time in hospital, um, which I think kind of, I think that kind of changes your perception, you know, because you start to feel a bit invincible and, and definitely with the, you know, the core of the military, that, that feeling of invincibility is, uh, it's kind of endemic, isn't it? You know, it's, it's kind of easily shared. So um, I think the, the changes to my outlook, um, I'm definitely more aware of, of how much it hurts when you get it wrong um, in, in all aspects, you know, from how much it physically hurts, how much it mentally hurts, how much it socially hurts, because, um, so many people came to my aid that I've, you know, I, I need to be saying thank you for a good few years, you know, so it's like professionally, it sent me back. Um, it's, you know, people, you know, got around me to, to kind of help me move forward, you know, as, as well, like if you're in hospital for three months, by God, you become, you can become pretty threaded with life, you know, as you can imagine. So, but, you know, I'd, I'd like two or three people visiting me every single day of those three months in hospital that, you know, people from who I've not spoken to for years, people who disappeared out of my life, you know, came, you know, stepped up and, and travelled the length of the country to come and see me in hospital and, and, and just to just to bring me, you know, scran, you know, outside life, stories of the outside world um, to kind of keep moving forward. Um, in terms of, like, changing outlook, it's definitely made me think, you know, I, I can't, I can't um, carry on being like this kind of Peter Pan type person, you know, like, you know, the, you know, the, the dude who never grows up, you know, yeah. I'm, just, you know I'm like, right, I, I need to, you know, kind of settle down, um, dare I say, it, kind of take on a proper career or, or proper post-military career, um, you know, kind of be a bit more responsible for myself, be, um, you know, responsible and helpful to, to kind of other people and, 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 you know, and support in ways which aren't always all that obvious, you know, like the, the, the people that came to see me in hospital every day, um, you know, they, they come in front, they drop in for an hour in, in Whitechapel of all, you know, literally the most random part of London and it's hard to get to, you know, they come and just be and bring morale with them, you know, and that's, that's uh, infectious, you know, you, you, you do come away from that, you know, being that little bit higher and, you know, when you're in a hospital ward and you're surrounded by motorcyclists who've been hit by cars and um, you know guys who've literally fallen off ladders and stuff, it's it's you realise kind of like really who your mates are then because they they just bring a little bit of you know happiness you know to your day in hospital when you're you're just getting woken up every four hours to have your temperature checked or your your vitals observed or things like that for you know for for three months you know. Um, you don't get anything more than four hours sleep because somebody's there to come check your blood pressure or check your your, um, your oxygen saturation or stuff like that. So, it, yeah, it does make you think a lot more in detail about you know, kind of the more, more about other people because you 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 know, I think when you go mountaineering, you can be like, oh yeah, if I if I if I die, I'll get injured. It's just me that has to mm-hmm. deal with this. But in actual fact, it's all the other people that have got to drop their real life to come and kind of peel you off the ground and make sure that you're not, you know, yeah. browners or, or worse, you know. So it's it's definitely made me think a lot more about what kind of risks I'll take in life and, and kind of like let, you know, I, I, I definitely couldn't go into mountaineering again without first having a, a really frank conversation with family and saying, mm. look, this is, this is um, you know, justified because of, you know, I want to get the first Afghan team onto Everest, for example, you know, that's, that to me is is a you know is justified 
risk that I need to kind of make sure that my family see it the same way as well, rather than just seeing that, you know, Chris wants to go and be a, you know, stand on Everest, you know, mm. be a, an alley dick. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how I put it. With, uh, I think we've obviously spoken a bit about the, the physical recovery. How's the mental recovery been from that? Has there been any... I've, 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 no, I've not, it sounds odd I've, because um, because the head injury uh, it, it like wipes your short term memory. So I don't think I don't think there's like any PTSD going on. I certainly don't. I don't remember anything. I don't remember the fall. I don't remember the day. I don't remember the, the like the, the week after I woke up from hospital. I remember I remember the the dreaming. The the the, the lucid dreaming is quite. Well, just that lucid, you know, it's quite clear, you know, I can still remember the dream quite quite clearly, but um, yeah, I just remember this, it, it was just a, a bit of a rubbish time in hospital, but, but then you've got, you've got like doctors and nurses who are running around something chronic, you know, just to make sure you're okay and, you know, make sure you've got, you're comfortable, you've got food or you're being looked after or the infection's not kind of eating you up, so um I can't really feel sorry for myself because there's so many people working on me just to keep me alive and obviously recovering. So, no, it sounds kind of odd. There's no real, there's no, there's no, um, you know, I'm not kept awake at night of memories of this fall because I don't remember it. You know, it's, it was there in my short term memory, which just got mm. erased. So, um, it was, you know, thankfully for all the people that came to see me, it was, you know, a massive, you know, pick me up because they're, they're just able to bring you, you know, and, and all my military mates as well just came in and, and were just taking the piss yeah. and chronic, you know, as, as, you, as you know, yeah, 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 because it, it was the people who, who would come and see you who would be, you know, a bit forlorn, you know, a bit, a bit sad about it. You know, oh, sorry, Chris, I'm really sorry to hear you, you're mountaineering, but, um, you know, you fell, but my mate Bags and, and Dave, you know, who are, who are you know, one, one's a bootneck and one's a, an ex-army uh, officer, you know, it was just like, fucking hell, Chris, you're a rubbish mountaineer, aren't you? You know, <laughs> swan diving without a rope, and, you know, and, you know, it was, it's exactly what you need, isn't it? Because um, if if they're if they're you know a bit of morale and, and having banter, it's like it makes you feel a bit less rubbish about the situation, doesn't it? You know, less less um, you know kind of pedestrian to your to the situation. You're just like, well. You know, my, my my girlfriend brought my laptop in, for example, and 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 I did start doing graphic design for the first time in, you know, a couple of decades. Uh, and then between like graphic design and and seeing mates who come in and take the piss out of you, I was like, this is actually all that bad. You know, it's like you know, it's, a, it's not that bad being asked, but when you've got the right people around you and and things to do, actually, you can you can you can kind of grizz out kind of more than I think. You know, you realise sometimes, which is a, I think, is a good nor good and a bad thing because, yeah, it's sometimes you can grizz out really rubbish situations, and but as long as you need to kind of make sure that actually you're, you know, you're you're recovering yourself afterward after that as well. Mm. So, um, you, you you've obviously mentioned there about Afghani's, yes, yeah, getting on top of Everest, and you'd love to be there. Tell us a lot more about. That whole side of what what your the project is you do with that, please, buddy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I guess the, the 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 biggest thing was I never I never deployed to Afghanistan with the you know with, in the military. So I deployed to Iraq twice. Um, my brother, who who was RMP, as I mentioned before, he deployed to Afghan three times. Um, you know, to to 
Lash and Helmand. Um, so he he definitely, you know, from our side of the family, was very more kind of Afghan-centric. And I always, I kind of left the core, you know, with a bit of a black cloud thinking I'd, I'd really miss on something, you know. I'd, I'd missed out on something, a shared experience everyone else had and could speak from. Um, I kind of felt like a bit like an outsider. So when um, when the opportunity came in 2016 to go and work for the charity in Kabul, um, you know, I was like really quite enthusiastic about it um, because I didn't have those experiences that everyone else, the negative experiences that everyone else had had. So I went out there for six weeks. There was, there was um, you know, the, the Taliban still doing their thing in Kabul and there's, uh, there's ISIS, um, you know, still doing some really terrible, heinous things. Um, but it... I, I, I'm trying to think of how to explain it, really. When I, when I came home from it, I was like thinking, that's that's not what I was expecting at all. You know, mm. but what I was expecting was, you know, seeing Helmand, you know, the sand, you know, the conflict, the the um, the real challenging nature of it. And you know, in in, in Kabul at the time, it was like I think I was more likely to get injured by boozing. You know, it's somebody who it was like the, the expat community out there was was really quite, um, you know, kind of glued together you know and it was like there's there's obviously um you know house parties and stuff to come take away the 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 pressure of it so i sat there with a big question mark going this is a this is not what i was expecting and then um the olympic association shared a a video i think around in october in 2016 which was a bunch of mountain bikers in kabul who were literally doing you know running the mountain bikes doing backflips 360s and stuff you know in around kabul and I, and I was sat there thinking, this this is really strange. All the stories I've heard about Afghanistan, mm. you know, being in the Corps, being in the army, and obviously you know losing mates to to Afghanistan. And I was like, I kind of want I want to go there and see this with my own eyes. So it's, it sounds a bit bonkers. In February 2017, I booked flights to Afghanistan. As you do, as you do. <laughs> Got in touch with um, some contacts who I've made for the BBC who run guest houses out there and security companies and just said, look, can I, can I come and stay with you for two weeks and just go and meet some of these mountain bikers? And it, it, it sounds weird, you know, saying it because I know some people, there's, there's been some really bad experiences of the country. Um, so when I flew myself out to Kabul um, and went and met these mountain bikers and these parkour, you know, free runners mm-hmm. and then these these um, skiers, these mountaineers, and just before I knew it, I literally started like pulling the curtain back on all these sports that happening in Afghanistan. And um, for me, uh, when, I, when I grew up in, in you know, a, a, a single parent household in Somerset, for me, mountain biking was, and sports was like a kind of a, you know, a kind of way to release, you know, release frustration and, and, and pent up energy. And, and what I saw when I met these mountain bikers and these free runners in Afghanistan was exactly the same thing. You know, it's just, we were just like 4,000 miles apart, you know, from where I grew up in Somerset to these kids who were, who were, um, you know, living through this conflict, you know, where the Taliban would swoop in and they would attack, you know, guest houses and, and charities and, and people trying to do good in, you know, in, in Kabul. And these kids were living through it by mountain biking and, and you know, helping each other through it, you know, and, and they were... Um, Afghanistan's kind of known for, in some parts it's quite tribal you know you've got the Pushtuns and you've got the uh, Hazaras and, and so on and so forth and, and these kids were you know they were like they didn't 
they didn't think anything about men and women riding bikes together in the same place. They didn't think about, you know, one's a Pushton, one's a Hazara, one's another tribe. It, to them, they were just like, well, we ride mountain bikes. You know? And we love it. But yeah, we, we love it, yeah. We've got and, a common passion for Exactly, it. yeah, there's a common thread there. And then, you know, they said, you know, they were, the, the drop and ride team were inspired to set up a mountain bike team after watching Danny McCaskill's videos on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was like going... Shit, this is like a direct, you know, the fact that um, Kabul's got the internet, you know, may probably in part would have been down to the, the the work that, you know, the British and Americans, you know, we did to, to kind of make sure that the, the Taliban were kind of pushed out of it and there was space for, for democracy to grow and, you know, and, and business to grow. So, you know, I was like, I don't think there's many people in the British or American military who realise that their hard work and their lost and their difficulties and their being away from home actually contributed to this new young wave of Afghans who were, you know, who were really redefining their culture because there's a safe space to, you know, to ride the bikes together. And, and you know, they're, 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 they're the, the future of the country now, I reckon. They're, they're, they're the ones that are showing there's a really different side to Afghanistan, <coughs> more than just, you know, the, the sand of Helmand or the, you know, or the, you know, the Taliban or ISIS. It's, um, yeah, and it still blows my mind that um, there's more and more sports teams I hear about every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, sk- skateboarders, there's skaters, there's mountaineers, there's skiers, there's there's literally all you know taekwondo. There's a female taekwondo team. There's wow. female kung fu teams. There's yeah, it's it's absolutely mind blowing. You know, for something which we think we know, you know, having served in Helmand or hearing about stories from Helmand. There's, there's almost like this, there's that side of it and there's this this other life side of it as well. So you saw all this on your two-week yeah. holiday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then what, what followed that? Um, I mean, I don't think you can really go to Afghanistan and meet these sports teams without saying, right, I've, I've got to help somehow, you know, and like, I can't, I can't come back to the UK in its relative safety and go, well, there's sports teams, you know, the sports teams are really cool, but what can I do? I, I literally started phoning around people saying, have you got spare mountain bikes? Have you got spare ice axes? Have you got spare skateboards? Have you got spare, you know, this or that? And, and just asked people to just start sending me gear, you know, like mm. GoPro cameras, for example. You know, you can't, there's not a GoPro stockist in Afghanistan, but the kids are all on social media and they freaking love showing like how hard they work and their skills and stuff. So I was like, if I'm the, you know, if I can't if I can't do anything else, if I can just be a conduit to kind of link, um, you know, people that served in Afghanistan with these sports teams and help these sports teams kind of share this other side of Afghanistan because they're you know these sports teams are they're they're in there they're like nineteen and twenty and you know and they're they're like they're young people you know, who are like in the military so it's right for me to to kind of be the the I don't know the the connection between people who've served there and also the kids that are really mm. shaping the culture now through through these sports. And how's it going? Uh, it's yeah, it's like it's it's incredible. I always feel like I'm not doing enough, but um, I hear about more sports teams. I I, I ran the marathon de Sables last year to to literally fundraise to buy mountaineering kit for for the mountaineers out there. So um, as part of wanting to to. Um, you know, help the first Afghan summit Everest. Um, I bought climbing helmets and harnesses and rope and crampons and ice axes and 
everything else um, to send out there and now kind of send them to, to friends out there that are traveling out there to, to get out to these sports teams. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> and then what's the long-term goal of man? Have you got a long-term goal? Obviously, getting Afghan man and woman uh, on Everest. Is yeah. there any other ones? It would be fantastic. Um, I think Af- Afghanistan... But I don't think people realise that Afghanistan is is hugely mountains. It is like I think seventy percent mountains. So there's no real end state for it because it's because I, I like you know the help the, the feeling of helping people that are, have been in the same situation as me. So what I what I what I can imagine is that say in X amount of years time, I don't want to put a time stamp on it, but Afghanistan will be like Chamonix. It'll be like Morzine, you know. You, you go. We, we fly to France to go skiing or snowboarding or mountain biking or uh, you know running or, or anything like that. Like I think Afghanistan and Asia, Central Asia, is going to be you know the new kind of venue for that because you know there's there's ski there's an annual ski race every year. There's an annual marathon every year. There's there's like all these you know there's there's places you can go stand up paddleboarding in Afghanistan in in the central islands yeah it's you know the the, the Bamiyan region is it's becoming a tourist mecca you know and and with uh, companies now flying directly into Kabul or they're flying directly into Bamiyan you can go there in relative safety um wow. you know and do and do sports there so it's um you know and, and there's there's the annual marathon attracts um hundreds of of you know, foreigners to come and see, you know, come and see and experience Afghanistan. So I can see it becoming, yeah, you know, the Chamonix of, of Asia in, wow. in the next kind of few years. You know? and, and what one thing that I've um, been in talks with is, is to, you know, let's, let's start thinking about getting the Winter Olympics held in Afghanistan. You know, how, how, how awesome and crazy exactly yeah, yeah 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 sports is definitely growing with the young generations of Afghanistan and I think holding the Olympics there would be an absolute game changer you know because it would for the first time it would bring um many other countries to the you know to Afghanistan so and have you, would you like to go back get back out there yes yeah I've got I intend to go back out there and uh when I'm when I'm recovered from from the broken leg, and I can um, yeah, I can walk properly again, and less like a robot. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, I can. <laughs> I definitely want to head back out there and see and see all these. You know, I, I talk to these teams almost every day on Facebook, and um, you know, I see I see and follow their progress, and and, and just try and um, highlight all their incredible achievements to other people. So, you know, my, my Facebook is is you know ninety percent Afghan sports teams mm-hmm. most days because it's. I think it's mind blowing, you know. And if 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 I can be a, a conduit to the the British and American veteran communities and say, look, the the work and the difficulties you went through hasn't been in vain, you know. This is why. Look, there's all these sports and teams and change going on in the country. That's um, it's you know it's only right for me to do that. So. And then if if anyone listening to this was like, man, I want to I want to help. I want to give you some kit or whatever. <laughs> how can they do that? Um, yeah, good question. <laughs> um, so my website, House of Hiatus, is is um, where I host the Hiatus Project. Um, the Hiatus Project is it, it's my long term project to get an unwanted, unused equipment out to to Afghanistan. Now, mm-hmm. um, what I found for experience is that um, I bought a load of ice axes, for example, and and it is so hard to get ice axes out to Afghanistan. And also as well is that you've now got um, 
businesses and manufacturers who are able to make this stuff in the country. So, so people like initially, I was like, oh yeah, people send mountain bikes and people send ice axes and all these big things. And actually, it's it's negative on the environment. It's hard to it's hard and expensive to send there. I can't always chaperone it out there. You know, I've got I've got to send it to other people to take out for me. So, think like GoPros are like one of the best things because if you send a GoPro to you know a young kid who's just getting into mountain biking, like imagine it. it's like it's like you know they they join a mountain bike team. And they're the social they, media and they give, yeah, they, yeah, they, they yeah they get given yeah they get given a GoPro when they get taught how to use it and they and they then become part of like a you know a real um positive group for change you know for of kids who who can ride these bikes properly so yeah just um getting in touch is probably the easiest way on 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 facebook or or, or instagram but um houseofhiatus.com is a website where i i try and absorb i absorb the cost of running the hiatus project myself because it's it's i think it's the right thing to do it's really quite challenging and time-consuming to set up a separate charity, mm-hmm. which was the original idea. Um, that is quite a lot. It's a lot of admin for the, I've, you know, I don't get a huge amount of donations of gear, but um, it's something which I hope to increase in the future. So maybe I'll revisit the charity idea in the future, mm-hmm. but for now I, I'll just pay for it myself and just send it out there via people that will take it out there. So That's fucking awesome, dude. Yeah, cheers, dude. Yeah. I'm going to have to take a break to go for a wee if that's all right. <laughs> I'm going to swing it on them at some point. <laughs> yes. Um, well, that's, mate, fucking, uh, yeah. Uh, so what's next? Uh, this is probably going to sound a Apart little... Apart from recovery, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've almost regrown that six centimetres of shin bone. So, uh, yeah, that's... <laughs> put that one in the um, in the CV at some point. It sounds a bit bonkers. Um, uh, I want to go into medicine next. So... Um, yeah, when I was young, when I was when I was a teenager, art and design was you know was was my huge interest. You know, it was a huge passion because um, it was kind of the first thing that I was kind of good at. You know, I was kind of decent at uh, drawing, uh, doodling. Um, yeah, you know, which is something that kind of like followed me through for many years. Um, and then uh, yeah, so I studied art and design and graphics at, univer- at college and university. Um, and now I'm I'm back to square one again with you know, learning GCSE level biology and chemistry to hopefully go on and do A levels and then and then go into to medicine and become an emergency medicine doctor or GP or wow. kind of yeah, what you know, whatever the future holds. Um it's it's something I've I first had there's an idea I first had in about two thousand and nine. Um you know Jokingly, I think I may have been watching too much Scrubs or, uh, you know, <laughs> or House or something like that, um, or Casualty. And, uh, yeah, it's, it was just an idea which I, I couldn't shake off for many, many years. It, it, I wasn't, it wasn't something I was really burning, you know, to do. You know, I wasn't intensely passionate about it. It was just this idea in the back of my head that was like, oh, yeah, maybe you should, maybe you could become a doctor. Maybe you could, uh, you know, you, you could start putting some of those, that knowledge, you know, from... Mm-hmm conflict from from the military from the security sector afterwards into you know into kind of helping people recover from you know big injuries and whether that's um being an emergency doctor like the i don't know if you've seen like the red helicopter that's flying about every so often outside but that's um you know the helicopter emergency medical team mm-hmm. you know from from the hospital that i was at i see flying around every single day it's almost like a visual reminder of like 
But yeah, you know, if you became a doctor, you you could be flying around on the helicopters again, you know, you know, but helping people out as a you know as a as an emergency medicine doctor, just like I was helped out by doctors and paramedics, you know, when I had my volunteer accident. So I guess um, over the last nine months of this pandemic and this recovery, um, it's kind of led me to you know, many hours of going, well, can I do medicine? Am I intelligent enough to do medicine? You know, how, how would I make that a reality? You know, um, right now, you know, security sector isn't doing anything because nobody's traveling. Mm -hmm. Nobody's um, really in need of any like heat training. So yeah, I've had to, you know, follow other interests like design and and stuff like that. Um, And it's just that idea of medicine in the background was just niggling away saying, well, actually, you know, with, with your experiences in, in Iraq and being a patient, you might actually not be a bad doctor. <laughs> There's many awesome doctors out there, you know, and I, and I had an awesome surgeon who, um, who I see every kind of six weeks, you know, who, who's, um, this Greek chap called Alex, you know, who, who's always like, like a bag of morale whenever I see him, you know, and it's like, you know, I can't not help, but have a slight man crush on him, you know, as, you know, as, a, yeah. as being, well, actually that would be, that would be, you know, a hard job, but, um, you know, it, job. a fulfilling job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, I think probably one of the, one of the things I've, I've found hardest post, post Marines is to find something that's as fulfilling as the military because, um, you know, working in the BBC processing risk assessments wasn't really that fulfilling, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> pushing paper around, um, you know, being a security consultant was, was hoofing because, you could do, you know, I could, I could go swimming in the sea or running on a South Downs way, as well as sat there making um, you know, security work. Um, but it still kind of misses that mm-hmm. that element of fulfilling, um, you know, fulfilling your potential. And so, I, I guess now being thirty-seven years old, um, I've kind of come to realise that actually, you know what, you could, you could become a doctor. It would be a long, hard process. You know, four years, at, four or five years at medical school, um, probably a year or two to get your A levels and just mentally prepare for it. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's nice to have something to aim for, even if it doesn't come off. You know, even if it's you know I crash and burn at med school, or, or hopefully I won't crash and burn on anyone. <laughs> you know, um, you know, it, it's nice to have something to aim for because it, rather than just kind of like drifting like a you know, like a ship without a rudder, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, it's kind of having something to aim for. Is awesome. Yeah, it gives you something to say, right, well, should I eat burgers tonight or should I sit there and revise it <laughs> or GCSE biology? Because, uh, yeah, it's been it's been 20 years since I sat my GCSE, so I feel like a, you know, like <laughs> like a, a real, a real uh, yeah, bit behind the curve, definitely. Well, man, I... <laughs> I've got full full confidence in you to do it, to be honest. So I'll pop back in five years and be like, "Well, how are we getting on, bro?" Yeah, yeah, yeah hopefully, yes. Yeah, as a broke student, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, who's not been has not been found, yeah, to, yeah, in the in in, in the NHS. Man, well, I have full respect to you for, for having that dream and going for it, dude. Sure. And then the other work you're doing as well, like, I, I love that. Yeah, I love yeah. that you're trying to shed a different light on on Afghan. Yeah, we all have preconceived you know what Afghan is not 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 just the military guys but more so the general public you say Afghan and they're gonna think of one or two things not this other crazy yeah. you know it's, it's yeah I guess the the, the the 
the example I use of it is um, if, if the, the veteran community has been to Helmand and has seen, you know, um, mud huts, you know, compounds, Taliban fighting, you know, complexity, agriculture, and then said, right, Afghanistan, it must all be like that. Mm. It, I guess it'd be some, it'd be, it'd be the, the equivalent of a tourist coming to London, mm. you know, flying to London and then going, right, well, this is really busy and frenetic and loud and, mm. like, you know, honking. That's what the whole of the UK must be like, you know, and it's it's the same kind of, I guess, um, kind of feeling a bit of a mission to sort of say, say well, there's this other side as well. There's all these cool mountains. You know, there's like a there's a seven and a half thousand meter mountain in Afghanistan. You know, not many people know, know about that. Like the Noshak um, in near the Wakhan corridor. So mm-hmm. the the kind of the the other famous part of Afghanistan is the Wakhan corridor, which is this real spit of um, land, like valley between um, uh, China and I can't remember what other country is. Um, but that's where the Noshak sits. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, this the, the Noshak was only summited um, in 2010, uh, and then it was summited by a woman for the first time two years ago, um, who, who came to talk at my my community. Um, and it was only only last week it was only it was summited by an all Afghan team. Wow. So it, in the past, it only been summited by foreigners. Mm. You know, so so even in the last week, we've had a you know a real world you know, global change, you know, Afghans without any foreigner support, um, you know, physical support have summited the highest mountain in their country, you know, which is, you know, a world, you know, a real, you know, world record, you know, world change. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, you know, I feel kind of responsible for saying, look, everyone, everyone's had those, there's a lot of people who've had bad experiences in the country. There's also all this other good stuff that may or may not have happened without your, your, you know, six month tour or multiple mm. multiple tours. So. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, man. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, cheers, man. <laughs> but I think I think we'll wrap it up there. Yeah, um, man, it's been a fucking pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> cheers, dude. yeah. Uh, yeah. As I was, you know, we were chatting before. You, you just the way I, you know, the way, when I had a look at your website last night and all that, you've got a real like zest for life. You're not just like, oh, I've done this, this, and this. You're like. I've done that, but what am I doing now? <laughs> and what's next? And I, I love it, dude. It's, it's, a, it's a thirst for life. It's contagious, man. It's, it's fucking brilliant. But anyway, appreciate you coming on today. No, you're welcome. Welcome uh, just come to London. No, well, yeah. We'll make a habit of it. Yeah, awesome. Chris, thank you very much, bro. Cool, cheers. Fucking mega, dude. Cheers, man. Awesome. And, um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that and we'll, uh, we'll catch you next week. Later. Cheers.